Hey, welcome to West Hills. My name is Will Duvall, the lead pastor here, and on behalf of all of us, um, if you're new or newer, we want to welcome you here. We're sincerely grateful and uh, really blessed that um, God led you to worship with us this morning. see a, a lot of new faces and a lot of uh, old familiar faces returning. Barb Underwood is back, and Brian and Missy Gambler are back, and it's exciting. So it's good to have all of you, and speaking of... Uh, New, uh, new folks, um, I have the honor of introducing you to our newest official members of the West Hills family this morning. So I'm going to read their names in uh, just a moment and ask them to stand as I do so we can um, celebrate and honor their covenant commitment to this church. Uh, but before I do that, I just remind you what membership is all about. We'll actually be discussing this a little bit at our um, annual meeting. We have our, our church's annual meeting, end of year, sort of taking stock and looking ahead to next year, uh, meeting right after this service, second service, we've got extra food, you're all welcomed to uh, stay for that, and if you are a member of the church, you're very much encouraged um, to stay for that, but you know, one of the things we'll be talking about at our, at our church kind of family meeting is, um, you know, the, 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 the business of the church doesn't happen without uh, the members, without you all, uh, you make the church happen. And, uh, you know, this past year, as we look back, we brought two new full-time staff members on, and uh, somebody's got to pay for them. And uh, so we'll look at the budget together and things like that. But our members, I mean, they, they, you guys are really the ones that foot the bill for, for that sort of thing, and not just the financial bill, but that serve and, and make the church happen. And so we're very, very dependent on and grateful for the members of this church, and uh, so I want to recognize the, the newest members in our midst for you, and I have to pull out my phone to do that and pull up this email that I sent Brian about the slides that you're going to see there. Um, so would you just stand as I call your name? Uh, Christina Bergsma, Allie Patton, Jesse and Allie Goodman, Melissa Jerome, Stephen Key, Adam and Rachel Moskull, Jason Myers, Jessica Zook, Saul and Rachel Rooker, Brian Wells, Ben and Alana Crailer, Will Pruden, Eric and Carrie Maupin, Samuel Ameh, and Sahai, is it a BB? Close enough. Yes, Sahai up there. So uh, would you all join me in uh, thanking them for their covenant commitment to this church? Let me say a prayer of a blessing over you all before I let you be seated. Father, thank you uh, for this, this group of uh, wonderful, amazing uh, new members and for the blessing that they have already been in their months, uh, in some cases years here at West Hills now. Uh, God, I just pray that you would continue to bless this church through them, that you would bless them um, in order to be a blessing to this church and especially uh, through the ministry of this church to bless others, to bless many outside the walls of this church um, through the ministry of the gospel that these new members help make possible. And so I uh, pray your, your richest blessings over them uh, this morning and over uh, all of us here. Would you bless us uh, now as we open your word together? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. 
last week, <clears throat> we kicked off our Advent season here with a new sermon series entitled Unheralded Heralds. Uh, the idea being most of us are pretty familiar with uh, the Charlie Brown version of the Christmas story that picks up in Luke chapter 2 with uh, the shepherds and the angels, Mary and Joseph, and of course uh, the main event, baby Jesus himself. Uh, but what about the minor characters of the nativity story? Those unheralded figures who God nevertheless saw fit to write into this most famous of all stories for a purpose. And one of the purposes that God has in including the likes of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna, all of whom we're going to study in this series, is that like them, you and I too, we have been called by God to be heralds of the good news about Jesus. They got to announce the good news of his birth. We get to announce the even better news of his death and resurrection and the hope of eternal life that he now offers us in Christ. Mark 16 commands us, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. And so like Zechariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, we're called to, to do this, to herald that news not for our own glory and renown, fame and reputation, but for God's, to be unheralded heralds, humble messengers. But if we're going to do that effectively, then we need to learn from their examples. And so last week, Pastor Thad introduced us to our first unheralded herald, Zechariah, who is unique among these four characters in that he serves as a negative example for us of what not to do as a herald, specifically, don't doubt God's word. You remember Zechariah last week was visited by none other than the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 who promised that Zechariah's old barren wife Elizabeth would finally, miraculously bear a son. And not just any son, but he would be Malachi 4's promised forerunner of the Messiah, the last true prophet. But Zechariah couldn't believe it. He doubted. And so the Lord worked another miracle, and he simultaneously shut Zechariah's mouth, even as he opened Elizabeth's womb. And the lesson for us last week was simple. You can't herald a message you don't believe. If you fail to believe, in fact, God may just shut your mouth altogether, make sure you don't announce anything to anyone. And so the first step in being a faithful herald of the gospel is to believe. We've got to believe the good news personally for ourselves. And so I ask you again this morning, do you believe? Do you believe the good news about Jesus this morning? Not just that he was born of a virgin on Christmas, but that he died on Good Friday as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. And that he was raised three days later on Easter to raise you to new life, eternal life, if you will simply trust in him by faith. Do you believe that this morning? If you do, you'll be saved. And if you do, you will want to herald that incredible news, the gospel, to all who will listen to you so that others might also hear and repent and believe and so be saved. And so this morning, we'll meet our second unheralded herald, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth. And so I would invite you to stand once again as you're able, as we read her story together from God's word. 
Luke chapter 1, bounce around four different sections here, verses 5 through 7, 24, 25, 39 through 45, and 56 through 66. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now verse 56. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. So now, Father, we do pray and ask you, would you illuminate our path, our hearts, once again, just as your spirit uh, bound up and then loosed the tongue of Zechariah, would you, would you loose, would you unstop our deaf ears this morning, would you, uh, would you unstop our blind eyes to see, would you soften our our hard hearts to to feel and experience the grace, the good news of Jesus as we behold him, your son, through your word this morning. Would you show us our need for a savior and your provision of a savior in your son Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Elizabeth's part in 
the nativity story of Jesus unfolds here over these four sections, and each one of them highlights, I think, a different attribute that she demonstrates for us about what it means to be a faithful messenger of the gospel. So let's, let's examine each of the four in turn. Number one, in verses five through seven, we discover that in order to be an effective herald, we must be righteous. Most effective heralds will be righteous. Elizabeth is described in verse 6 as righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, we should say up front, it's not enough to be righteous because the text makes clear her husband Zechariah was righteous too. And he was not such an effective herald, uh, at least until God unstopped his tongue again at the end, verse 65 and 66. But If you're not righteous, that can seriously impede, as we will see, your ability to be used by God as a witness, a herald to others. We all know this to be true, both intuitively and from personal experience. If you're trying to convince someone that if they want eternal life, life to the fullest, not just in life after death, in the life to come, but in this life as well, that they need to know Jesus that he offers them that kind of eternal life that ever since you came to know Jesus, life has not been the same for you. He's transformed you from the inside out. As, as Brian read from 2 Corinthians 5 for us, you're, you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. If that's the message and the invitation that you're extending to these unbelievers that you're, you're trying to herald and witness to, your family members, your, your coworkers, neighbors, and yet if the reality of your life If what they actually see in your life doesn't look anything like life to the fullest to them, then you're not going to be a very effective herald, right? Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. And non-Christians understand this. If your fruit stinks, if it's rotten, then no one's going to be interested in planting whatever seed that's been planted in your life in the soil of their own heart. Think on the the flip side, someone like the Apostle Paul, who was bold enough to witness to the Corinthian church in this way. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I don't know about you, but that is a convicting passage of scripture for me personally. I I don't know if if, if I evangelized my unbelieving friends, family members that way, and said, hey, if you give your life to Christ, he can transform your life to look more like mine. Why are you all laughing? I'm supposed to be the one that laughs, but I don't know how many takers I would get. The famous skeptic, Friedrich Nietzsche, once quipped, I might believe in the Redeemer, if his followers looked a little more redeemed. Nearly every poll taken of non-Christians asking why they don't follow Christ reveals the same truth. One of the top answers is the hypocrisy in the church. If that's what it means to be a Jesus follower, I don't want any part of it. May it not be said of us at West Hills. We want to be righteous. We want to be different, not perfect, We don't claim to be perfect. We're imperfect people who are slowly but surely being perfected by a perfect Savior and sanctifier. We all still make mistakes. We fall short of the glory of God. But 
the question, the, the, the convicting and real and pressing question for us this morning is, is the overarching long-term trajectory, direction of our lives, does it trend toward righteousness? Do we look a little more like Jesus today than we did yesterday? A little more like him this year than we did last year? 1 John 2, 29 states clearly, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. Proof's in the pudding. Conversely, 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. Jesus said, you know, thorn bush can't produce figs. If you plant a thorn seed, you're going to get thorns. If you plant a fig seed, you're going to get figs. One of the most well-known passages in the New Testament on, on heralding, on, on witnessing evangelism, is 1 Peter 3.15 Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Notice, the only reason that you would even need to be ready to give an answer, a defense, is if someone has a reason to ask you about the hope that they see in you, a difference that they see in you, hope, peace, joy, love, the fruit of the Spirit at work in your heart. I'm going to pick on one of our elders here. Greg Stewart does not have the spiritual gift of evangelism. He does not wake up every morning excited, just thinking and praying about who he gets to share the gospel with that day. But here's what Greg does do, and I know this to be true. He's a good husband, father to Katie and his kids. He's a good employee, and, and he works diligently with competency and integrity. He's a good neighbor. The stewards are kind and hospitable and caring. And in the two and a half years since I've been lead pastor here, we have seen four different families come to West Hills through the simple, ordinary, but faithful, righteous, everyday ministry of the gospel of the stewards in their neighborhood. We need more heralds like that. And that's not to exalt them. That's God working through them. That's the spirit at work in their lives. May our lives, may our righteous lives be living testimonies to the truth of the gospel at work within us. Number two, we need to be humble and worshipful. Humble and worshipful. Verse 24 here is kind of bizarre. It says, Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, she kept herself hidden. Now, Pastor Thad informed you last week that Jews, at this time, viewed affliction as a sign of God's judgment against a person. That's why the disciples asked Jesus in John chapter 9, uh, Rabbi, who sinned, this blind man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because hey, they just assumed that if he suffered with blindness, it must be because God was punishing him for some sin, either his or his parents. And so now we go back to Luke, chapter 1, verse 25, we hear that Elizabeth had been viewed with reproach. 
with disgrace, disapproval, guilt by those around her for decades now. We don't know how old she was for sure. Did a little research this week, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, uh, the, the oldest woman uh, in modern history that we know of on record to, to give birth was 66 years old. And so if Elizabeth's conception was only possible through a miracle of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to guess she was at least, you know, around there, 50s, 60s, well past childbearing age, and she has been battling infertility all her life for decades, and her Jewish peers have concluded there must be some hidden sin in her life. From the outside, sure, she looks righteous, she looks blameless before the Lord, verse 6, but God doesn't let the righteous suffer. He must be judging her for something, punishing her. Apparently, they forgot to read the book of Job in their Old Testament. Job was a blameless man, suffered. Now, if I'm Elizabeth in that scenario, and after decades of barrenness and, and scorn and condemnation, not only do I miraculously conceive, but the child in my womb is none other, I know, than the prophet promised in the Old Testament, Malachi 4. And if the angel Gabriel himself had come down to personally announce it to me, you better believe, if it's me, I would be rubbing my big fat pregnant belly in every other woman's face in town. I would ask the angel Gabriel if he could come and repeat the promise one more time so I could record him as proof to show everyone else you, you're judging me, thought I was such a sinner? Well, watch this. I'm blessed by the Lord. In, in my version of it, I took my iPhone back in, in time with me. But what does Elizabeth do here? She hides herself for five months. She keeps to her house. Why? Well, Luke doesn't tell us for sure. But my theory is it's because she's humble, because she knows that as a sinner... Her temptation is going to be to flaunt her pregnancy in order to vindicate herself and clear her good name. But Elizabeth knows that doing so would make this pregnancy all about her when Gabriel has made it clear this pregnancy, this child is all about God. Why did God let her suffer barrenness all those years? It's the same reason he let the blind man suffer from blindness. John 9, Jesus tells us why that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's so that God might get glory from doing the impossible, from doing what only God could possibly have done, giving sight to a blind man, opening the womb of a 60-something-year-old barren woman. So in verse 25, Elizabeth keeps herself hidden, saying, verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. She says, look, the Lord worked this miracle. I don't care what others say about me or about it. It's not about them. It's not even about me. This is about God, the fulfillment of his plan. It's about his power. It's about his faithfulness. It's about his kindness to me. And in her humility, Elizabeth worships the Lord. 
Perhaps that's another reason she hid for five months, to devote herself wholeheartedly to exalting the Lord for this amazing gift, this blessing that he has given her. Humility and worship, they go hand in hand, right? Elizabeth's son, John the Baptist, he makes this clearest for us when he declares famously of Jesus in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase worship, I must decrease decrease humility. The only way to make much of Jesus is if I get out of the way. There's not enough room in the spotlight for both of us. If he's going to increase in our lives and our hearts, as the sole rightful recipient of our, our, our affection and devotion and attention and worship, then you and I, we have got to decrease in humility. And listen, if anyone had a reason to be prideful, it was John the Baptist. This guy had Old Testament prophecy written about him. Angels announced his birth. Matthew 3, 5 says that all of Judea was coming out to the middle of the desert, hundreds of miles, to listen to John's preaching and to be baptized by him in spite of the fact that he dressed and ate like a crazy homeless person. His preaching was that good. And yet John said, I'm just a messenger. I am a humble herald of a Messiah whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie. He must increase, I must decrease. Where do you think John learned that kind of humility and worship? Like mother, like son, right? Elizabeth taught him well. But like most of the virtues that we parents try to convey to our kids, humility and worship aren't so much taught as they are caught. John didn't turn out worshipful and humble because of what Zechariah and Elizabeth told him. No, they they showed him that God was primary through the way they lived their own lives. And so, as parents, we we aren't surprised when our kids act self-centered and ungrateful, the opposite of humble and worshipful, self-centered ungrateful. If, if the message that my own actions are sending them every day is God must decrease so that will can increase. Rather, our humble worship ought to point others, especially those closest to us, our spouses, our, 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 our kids. It ought to point them past us to Jesus. He must increase, we must decrease. Number three, In order to be a faithful herald, you must be a spirit-filled blesser of others. We want to be, like Elizabeth, spirit-filled blessers of others. We read in verse 39 that immediately after the angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary, in verses 26 through 38, she arose and went with haste to the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Why? Well... Verse 36 tells us that Elizabeth was Mary's relative. Uh, That fact alone can't explain it, though. Presumably, Mary would have had plenty of other relatives right there in her hometown of Nazareth, whom she wouldn't have had to travel 100 miles while fighting first trimester morning sickness to visit in Judea, all the way in the south. And so some point out that perhaps Mary wanted to get out of town before she started showing. Remember, she wasn't married yet. 
She was still betrothed, and so it was only a matter of time until the baby bump started showing, the rumors and questions, questions started coming. I had a friend in high school who missed half of our junior year for that very reason. Avoid the questions, judgmental stares. So you can imagine the looks that Mary must have gotten walking around the, the halls of Nazareth High and the, the halls of the First Baptist Nazareth Youth Group. Imagine how they reacted when they asked, so, who's the father? She replied, the Holy Spirit. I'm, oh, I'm a virgin. I, I'm just carrying God's baby. <clears throat> so Mary wanted to get out of town. But I think it's more than that, too. In verse 36, Gabriel had told Mary about Elizabeth's own miraculous conception. Not immaculate like Mary's, mind you, but miraculous nevertheless. And so Mary knew if anyone was going to believe her, going to understand what she was going through, going to believe, hey, this angel came and miraculously now I'm pregnant. It would be Aunt Elizabeth, great Aunt Elizabeth. And moreover, Mary knew Elizabeth to be righteous, having herself been the object of society's undeserved scorn and judgment, yet consistently rising above it in blamelessness before the Lord. If anyone would show Mary mercy and grace and compassion, it would be great Aunt Elizabeth. And so she goes to Judea. But whatever Mary expected to hear when she arrived at Zechariah and Elizabeth's doorstep, it couldn't have possibly been the words of verses 42 through 45 here. Blessed are you among women, Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Keep in mind, Mary hasn't even told her she's pregnant yet. All right, she, she's not even through the front door yet, and Elizabeth is already blessing Mary's unborn one-week-old child. Verse 43, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So not only does she know she's pregnant, she knows the identity of the baby inside her. He's the Messiah, our promised Messiah. This is confirmation of the angel Gabriel's promise to her. Verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Six-month-old John is in here doing flips over one-week-old fetus Jesus on the front doorstep. In verse 45, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. That one had to sting a little bit for her husband, Zechariah, in the living room. He's overhearing all this. And remember, he, he hasn't been able to talk for six months because of his disbelief. Elizabeth maybe forgot. Hey, Zechariah, Mary's here. Come say hi. Oh, right. Right, right down, hello, you know. How could Elizabeth possibly have known all this? Verse 41 explains, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the practical application for us today? Most of us may live our entire lives, never enjoy the spiritual gift of prophecy, spontaneous divine revelation directly from God himself like Elizabeth here. But this is about more than just prophecy. What we do know is true of every true child of God here this morning is that God empowers his people with his Holy Spirit in order that we might be a blessing to others. 
What's true of Elizabeth's gift of prophecy is true of every spiritual gift. God gives, 1 Corinthians 12, God gives spiritual gifts, gifts of his spirit for the purpose of blessing and serving others. We just finished the book of Genesis over the summer. Do you remember why God blessed Abraham in Genesis 12? It's so that he and his offspring could be a blessing to all the families of the earth. He was blessed to be a blessing. Isaiah 43, 7 tells us why we've been put on this earth, every single one of us. God says he created us to bring him glory. And so how do we do that? How do we bring God glory? Well, Jesus himself answered for us in John chapter 15. He said, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Think about that. When the Bible uses that metaphor, fruit, what is fruit anatomically? Y'all remember high school biology class? Fruit is a tree's means of reproduction. Fruit is how a tree makes more trees. It's how it disseminates, multiplies, spreads, scatters its seed. And so Jesus is saying here, you want to glorify God? Go make disciples. Spread the seed of the gospel to all nations. Bear much fruit. Reproduce the gospel into hearts with fertile soil. Now, you and I, we know, can't make it grow, 1 Corinthians 4. God gives the growth, but we can sow. He makes it grow. We have to sow. You can bear witness. We can herald the good news that Jesus has brought us. And Jesus goes so far as to say in John 15 that by doing so, by bearing much fruit, that's how we prove ourselves to be his disciples. You want the assurance of salvation this morning? You want to know that you're in, that you're elect, that you made the cut, that you're going to heaven? Bear much fruit and so prove that you're my disciples. You'll know a tree by its fruit. Listen, Jesus instructs us unequivocally, Matthew 5, no one lights a lamp only to hide it under a basket, but rather to give light to the whole house. In the same way, he says, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Church, Jesus didn't put his spirit within us. He didn't illuminate, turn on the lights in our hearts so that we could keep the gospel to ourselves. This little light of mine, I'm going to, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, right? Brother, sister, like Elizabeth, you and I have been blessed to be a blessing to others. John 15, 26, Jesus promised his disciples that he was sending them his spirit to bear witness about me. That's why he filled his, his followers with his Holy Spirit, was to bear witness. Acts 1, 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes over you and then you'll be my witnesses. It's the very next thing. Next thing. It's why you get the Spirit. Uh, what's, the, what's the first thing they do in Acts chapter 2 after getting filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? 
They rush outside and start preaching the gospel in every conceivable language so that every nation, tribe, and tongue might hear the good news about Jesus and repent and believe and so be saved. Time and time again in Scripture, you are blessed with this gift of the Holy Spirit, God's own presence living in you in order to bless others. Spirit bestows many gifts, all of which can and should be used to bless others, but the single greatest blessing of all that you and I, no matter your spiritual giftedness, could ever bless another person with is the blessing of the gospel. To share with another person the good news about Jesus and thereby bless them with the hope of eternal life in Christ. Jesus is the greatest gift of all. Christmas, every season, Jesus is the gift we want to bless people with. Lastly, number four, if we want to be faithful, unheralded heralds, we must be obedient. We need to be obedient. We read in verse 56 that Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and then returned home. So first of all, Elizabeth clearly demonstrates here the obedience of hospitality. Remember, she's blameless in all the commandments of the Lord. God had commanded hospitality in his word in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.34. The stranger who sojourns with you, you shall love him as yourself. How much more so? Your own flesh and blood then. Remember the relatives. And keep in mind too, Mary was engaged to be married. So let's just set the scene here. She's probably 12 or 13 years old, according to Jewish custom in the day. That was the standard age for a young girl's betrothal. 12 or 13. Can you imagine being married, being, being unwed, pregnant, 12 years old, out on your own, 100 miles from home, running, scared. Mary is vulnerable. She's desperate. But at the same time, can you imagine being Elizabeth? We found out, Polly and I, with our last pregnancy, that even today, with all the advancements of modern medicine, technology, if you are 35 years old as a woman, that automatically qualifies you as a, an at-risk pregnancy. So now let's go back in time 2,000 years when something like one-fourth of mothers under normal circumstances, normal childbearing age, a fourth of them wouldn't survive childbirth. Can you imagine being in your 60s, 70s? We don't know how old she was. If anyone needed to be put straight on bed rest for nine months. It was Elizabeth. Maybe that's another reason she hit herself those first five months. She doesn't want to do anything to jeopardize this pregnancy. And so you imagine being Elizabeth, six months pregnant now, and Mary shows up on your doorstep. Holy Spirit comes over you. You bless her. You welcome her in. You draw a warm bath for her so she can clean up after her long journey. You cook her a nice big meal sit down, catch up over dinner, you know, stay up late, catching up, offer her a cozy bed, you got to make the guest room. By the end of the night, you're tired, feet hurt, 70, pregnant. I can imagine how the conversation over coffee went the next morning. Elizabeth's tired. She asked, so how long are you in town for? <laughs> a couple, and before she can finish her sentence, Mary interjects, months, yeah, months. 
was thinking a couple, three, four months, just make it through the first trimester here. You know how hard it is. And Elizabeth's thinking to herself, yeah, I do. <laughs> just try it when you're 60, 70. And now I'm going to wait on you hand and foot for the next three months while I'm in my third trimester. That's what I'd be thinking. But not Elizabeth. Elizabeth is a true Proverbs 31 woman. And a Proverbs 31 woman opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. Verse 20. She is hospitable, especially to those who are most vulnerable and needy. Verse 57. Finally, the time comes for Elizabeth to give birth, and so Mary returns home, and Elizabeth bears a son. And now, verse 58, her neighbors and relatives, the ones who have been mocking her, judging her, condemning her all these, these years, now they all gather around to rejoice with her. They figure, well, God must have finally forgiven whatever grievous iniquity she was guilty of. And so they gather around. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise and name the child. And since that was typically the father's role, but Zechariah can't speak, these neighbors and relatives, they just take it upon themselves to name her child. And they tried to call him Zechariah after his father. But verse 60, his mother, Elizabeth, answered, No, he shall be called John. Now imagine that scene. Crowded around, rejoicing. Just pretending like it's all water under the bridge. They've been best friends with buddy, uh, best buddies with Elizabeth all along. Now that she's back in their social graces. They're so used to running roughshod right over her. Because that's what you do to someone who you don't deem worthy of your friendship. And someone who's so humble like Elizabeth that they might let you get away with stepping on them. And so they just overlook her. They completely take it upon themselves to name her child. And if an angel of the Lord hadn't commanded otherwise, Elizabeth may have been humble enough to keep her peace. But this now, this is a matter of obedience. The angel told her what, what the boy's name would be. So for perhaps the first time in all her life, modest, meek, mild, humble, old Elizabeth, she puts her foot down. Amidst all the commotion of the christening party, she raises her voice and exclaims, No! And the record scratches. Party music stops. All eyes turn. Look at her mouths agape as Elizabeth declares, he shall be called John. It's a matter of obedience to God. But it's so much more than that too because as you know, names in the Bible are incredibly significant. Zechariah means God remembers. It's a great name. There were at least 29 different Zechariahs in the Old Testament. But the name Zechariah, God remembers, points us backwards this child, Elizabeth's child, he came to point us forward. His name will be John. John means God is gracious because God's grace is entering the world in a fundamentally new way in the person of his son Jesus. John's a better name. I'm a little biased. It's my first name. Isaiah 43 
John, uh, God had prom- prophesied. Isaiah 43, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 750 years later, all of Judea made its way out into the wilderness to listen to Elizabeth's son prepare the way for the one who would cause rivers of living water to spring forth in the desert of people's dry, thirsty souls. His name is Jesus. And he offers you that same living water this morning. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Friends, taste and see this morning that the Lord is good. And once you have, pass the cup on to the next person so that they can quench their tired, thirsty soul as well.